Let's turn to the book of Esther and the first chapter, passage that was read in your hearing. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over a hundred. hundred years before the coming of our Lord Jesus. Another 300 miles east to Cush. Uh, throughout the 5th century, Israel had been conquered having been conquered by Persia, was absorbed into the vast Persian Empire. It's the largest empire that the world has ever seen. It covered um, Arabia, Libya, the Sudan, parts of Egypt, Ethiopia, North Africa, then Israel and Lebanon, the Jordan, then across Iran and Iraq and Turkey and uh, Pakistan, 127 provinces in all the Chinese Empire at that time, uh, that dynasty was enormous, but uh, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, was bigger still. It was administered to by an army of civil servants, and uh, it lasted 200 years and was finally conquered by Alexander the Great. It was a totally godless kingdom. Old Testament Christians had been constantly a great letdown. They had defied God. They were worldly people. They refused to love and serve the Lord. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel had been sent to them over the latter years and urged them to change their ways. God made the perils spectacularly clear what would happen if they, if they didn't get their act together and stop worshipping Baal and just served him. But they defied him. So Jeremiah told them the city of Jerusalem and its temple will be destroyed. You'll be carried off as a nation of slaves into exile in Babylon. And they disclaimed this warning. They placed their hopes of freedom in a military alliance with countries like Egypt. But there was their first defeat in 597 and then the great year. Then 586, Jerusalem then destroyed, leveled to the ground, the temple, the palace, the buildings just totally destroyed. And the population then taking that long journey eastwards, uh, 600 miles then to Babylon. There they were a servile underclass for 60 years. And uh, their great leader was Daniel. There he kept uh, speaking to their consciences, kept their faith alive by his influence and his personality. And then in the year 538, Cyrus the Mede, he conquered Babylon and he issued this amazing decree that allowed the Jews and all the different peoples, if they wanted to, they could go back home to their own nations. Well, there was a very minimal response from the Jews. There was that group that went back under Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. But Daniel was obviously a lone voice during those 60 years, one of the lone voices of Jehovahism, and so uh, most of the people stayed behind there 
What happened to them? Well, this book is a window on their lives. It gives us a a very vivid picture of uh, how they survived so far from Jerusalem. Weak in faith. They were not doing well. They suffered discrimination. They were considered second-class citizens. They were intermarrying with the pagans around them. Integration seemed the way ahead. The salt was losing its savour. They were increasingly behaving uh, according to the morals and the enthusiasms of the people surrounding them. Retaliating, seeking vengeance, inordinately consumed with physical beauty. Little desire to return to the land of promise. Indeed, uh, many of them moved further away, another 300 miles further east to Susa. Uh, So that's uh, about almost a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. Situation then has parallels to the one which the gospel church of Jesus Christ is facing today in our land across much of our continent. Many European Christians are weak, conscious that we live in a world where God has been marginalized and ignored during increasingly noisy rumbles of opposition because of the distinct convictions that we hold concerning Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the only way to God. What hope is there for us? What future do believers have in our day? Can we survive when we are surrounded by such uh, anti-Christian forces and powers, all the layers of government and the media and the press and the publishing houses and education from the very beginning to the highest levels? High life, low life are all in their pockets. How are we going to cope in our Babylon, in our exile? And one great message of this book of Esther is that God has pledged himself to protect his people forever. So what is the basis of our hope as believers in in what's been dubbed a post-Christian a postmodernist situation. You go to the very end of this book and you read interesting words in Ezra 8 and verse 11. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves. And verse 16 in chapter 8. For the Jews it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor in every province and in every city wherever the edict of the king went. There was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. So here at the end of the book, the people of God are enjoying protection. They're given the right to assemble for worship. They're being honoured. They're celebrating. They are even having some success in evangelism because many Persians are converting to faith in the Lord that was the future that's the end of this book and it will be our future too if God should bless us and if we remain faithful to him and God will work things for our good so this book is telling us how this end was accomplished security and growth For the people of God in Babylon. 
The first thing I want you to see is this. The heart of King Xerxes was in God's hands. It, it starts off, the book starts off with one of the most elaborate and lengthy parties that the world has ever seen in uh, the court of the Persian king Ahasuerus, but better known by his Greek name Xerxes. And he assembled there in Susa all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of the Medes and the Persians, the princes, the nobles, and for six wearying months he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty to these people. So they had to look at all that. And then he held a banquet for everybody, and it lasted a week in the, in the royal gardens. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones, Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. So it was a society then just like Wales today, of conspicuous consumption, the rich and the powerful had everything they desired, sustained by a vast underprivileged underclass. Drinking wine, drinking spirits, that was considered indispensable for having a good time. Men had all power and authority. Women were very much second-class citizens. And during this feast, then the women they met separately, they had their own banquet away from the drunken men. And then the king then... We're told he was drunk. He ordered his wife Ashti to leave the women and to come and display her beauty, to parade herself before his drinking buddies. And Vashti plainly refused. So evidently there was some dignity and some modesty in that royal palace after 60 years of Daniel's presence serving four different kings. And yet that stand for purity that she took did not result in Vashti being honoured by the world. You often hear Christians saying how they knew how Christians resisted worldly pressures in their jobs and in their businesses. And well, they ended up as managing directors, we are told. They wouldn't work on Sunday, they became the boss. They took a principled stand on something and uh, they were elevated. Well, maybe that can happen. But that's no reason for us to do God's will. Here's Vashti. She took a stand. She defied the king. And as a result, her office as the queen of Persia came to an end. She was divorced. She was dumped by Xerxes. It was a message very publicly to all the women of the country not to get uppity. Oh, you see what happened to Vashti? It'll happen to you too. Let the women know their place as subservient to their husbands. That's the sick and sad scene with which the book of Esther begins. And let's remember then that uh, Christians have to serve the Lord not because 
we hope that we are going to get then advancement and more influence in our places of work and we're going to end up as the managing director. But because it is right to serve the Lord at whatever the cost, we have to live modestly and quietly even for the sake of possible loss. So here the tone of the book is set. Here the warning noises are displayed. That if a a person of such influence and noble rank loved by the king would not be spared if she went out of line. What hope can there be for aliens who've been brought there from another country? People whose Worship is directed not to the gods of the Babylonians, but to Babylonians, but to the to the living God. How can Christians hope to survive with such pressures all around them? Xerxes is a rather shadowy figure in uh, in this book, but uh, one thing we know about him, we are assured of him from the book of Proverbs in the opening verse of chapter twenty-one: the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Where is Xerxes' heart? It is in the Lord's hand. And he will direct it like a watercourse wherever God pleases. Second thing I want you to see is that God's plan was to use the sinful divorce to bring blessing on the people of God. So here is Xerxes, king over 127 provinces, ruling from his royal throne, a monster of unchallengeable leadership, an absolute tyrant. His, uh, his servants tiptoe around him like they tiptoed around Pharaoh, the butler and the, and the baker, as if they were walking on eggshells. He was the supreme authority. He was the mightiest man in the world that the world had ever seen. The influence he had. Whatever he decreed must be done. This bully so full of himself, these weary nobles and officials and military leaders had had to make approving noises for six whole months as he showed them his treasury and his gold and silver and his firepower and paraded it in all sorts of ways for six long months. And when he swallows yet another glass of wine, no one dares to say, now you've had enough. If his own wife should challenge him, then it's all over. She's dismissed from the marriage bed. He's a vile and godless egomaniac. And I'm saying to you that God's plan for his people's safety, security, growth, embraces King Xerxes and his decisions and the decisions of all his henchmen, that the vacancy for the new queen is going to be filled by an Old Testament Christian named Esther. And as queen, she is going to be the deliverer of her people. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. We are affirming that God is accomplishing his plan for his creation. And at Esther's time, it involved the coming of the seed of the woman that God had promised in the garden. And at our time, God's plan is that all the elect of God are going to be saved 
and that Jesus Christ is going to return in great glory and power to this world. And nothing shall thwart God's plan for our own individual lives as his servants. Nothing is going to thwart it. Not even a mighty tyrant like Xerxes or his equivalent today. Let me illustrate this from Job. Job went through a terrible time. He lost his business, his children, his health, his reputation. The bedrock of his comfort was this knowledge that nothing happened by accident to him. That nothing happened just because the devil was getting at him. Almighty God had a plan for Job's life. And everything that touched him was in accordance with that plan. Job says these were Job chapter 23 and verses 13 and 14. He's talking about God. But he stands alone. And who can oppose him? He does whatsoever he pleases. He carries out his decree against me. And many such plans he still has in store. Who is it that stands in the throne of God at the helm of the vast cosmos and is taking it to its ultimate destination? Who has all authority in heaven and on earth? Are there two warring gods, a good God and a bad God? When bad things happen, is it because the bad God has got the upper hand? When good things happen, is it because gentle Jesus, meek and mild, has got the upper hand? No. Job says, God stands alone. One sovereign ruler of the skies. And then he considers the Lord's mighty power and he says, and who can oppose him? Who can smack God's hand and say, don't do that? Who can push God aside if he wants to help us and lift us up again? Or if he wants to throw the devil into the bottomless pit? God stands alone in his might among the armies of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth. He does whatsoever he pleases. That is Job's God and that is our God too. And that conviction provided rationality and it provided hope for Job after all he endured. It was not because Baal or Beelzebub had pushed the Lord off his throne for an hour that all the troubles came crashing into Job's life and the life of his family one after another. God was standing there alone in the midst of the throne and none to oppose him. And whatever happened to Job was, in Job's words, because of this great reason, God carries out his decree against me and many such plans he still has in store. Job 23, 13 and 14. What's happened to me is because of God's decree. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I know whatever it will be is according to to God's providence. Now no one can ever steal from you the providence of God. It's the providence of God that this first Sunday in February you should be in this church and I should be speaking these words to you. That's the decree of God for you. That he's put you in a certain place. Sovereign ruler of the skies, ever gracious, ever wise, 
All my times are in thy hands. All events at thy command. His decrees who formed the earth fixed my first and second birth. Parents, native place and time all appointed were by him. God has a universal plan and that then will embrace everything and it will use also godless Xerxes and godly Job. Let me give you three more statements from the Bible then to confirm that fact that what Job says there in chapter 23 is found elsewhere in the Bible. First, of course, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. In all things. Who have been called according to his purpose. Make no exceptions where God makes none. In all things God works for the good of those that love him. Your wet February mornings. Your summer holidays. Your broken heart. Your rejoicing spirit. Your sickness, your health, your partings, your comings together again, your falls and your risings. God works in them all for the good of them that love him. They all must fulfill his purpose of preserving his people and making them like Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of God, isn't it, for us all? To make us all in the likeness of Christ. The second verse, Romans 11, 36 for from God and through God and to God are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Make no exceptions. All things are from God. He is the author and source of everything. All things are through God. God then controls and brings to pass all things. To God are all things. God is the final, purposeful end of all things. And that's a mighty statement. It is saying to us, God knows what he is doing with you and me and our church and Christians in Europe and in the world today. His plans, his works are never arbitrary. They're never capricious. They all have a purpose which is like his own nature. And his own nature is all wise and all good. And so his plans are all wise and all good too. They are the best possible plans. And when we fully understand them, not this morning, we see his plans through a glass darkly. But one day we will see his plans face to face. We will look over them and examine them. They'll be spread out for us. And we will understand how perfectly God has worked everything. And we will say then, what Paul says there, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's, that'll be our theme. Not uh, eternal grudges against what God has done. But eternal glory being given to the God who's done them. And thirdly, Ephesians 1.11, the plan of him who works out everything in a Conformity with the purpose of his will. The plan of God who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1, 1, 1, 1, 11. My length of life, my singleness or my marriage, 
how many children I have or that I don't have, how long I'll be married, where I'll spend my life, how my last frail years will be spent. Everything in accordance with the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1, 1, 1. Someone once said, if I were as sovereign as God, I'd change a lot of things. If I were as wise as God, I wouldn't change a single thing. And so I am telling you that God has a plan. A plan for his people. Their preservation, their joy, their growth. And that plan can embrace then an anti-Christian tyrant like King Xerxes. Uh, Well, now let me amplify that again. Let me put that statement within all the Bible's teaching about the decrees of God, including the sinful acts of men. Let me show you two examples of this then from the Bible. One from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament that confirms to you what I'm saying. It's for your comfort and understanding Uh, For me it is safe, and for you it is good. Uh, Joseph, all right, we're looking at the life of Joseph, sold by his brothers into a life of slavery in distant Egypt. They hated him. They hated him enough that they were callous about breaking dad's heart. When many years later Joseph confronts them, and he sees their fear, he says these words, You intended to harm me. This is Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 of course. You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. So the brothers of Joseph were as evil as King Xerxes. They hated Joseph. All they wanted was to get rid of this pesky kid. They never considered then going to Egypt would be a a wonderful place for a job seeker and that he would do very well there. Their motives are only evil. But their hearts were in the hand of the Lord. God's plan was to use the selling of Joseph and his purchase by General Potiphar and the lust of Mrs. Potiphar and the time of prison and uh, the dream of the the butler and the dream of Pharaoh later on to bring him from the prison to the royal palace and exalt him to be the prime minister of Egypt, thereby to preserve in a time of seven years famine his people and their seed and the seed who one day would come into the world. And when he shows himself to them, they are so afraid that he is now going to get even. He's going to have them all hung up on eleven gallows. But God said, our sovereign God used your sin to accomplish his own good purposes. You intended to harm me. It was no excuse for you in your evil intentions that God used them to uh, save you and provide for you and my father and our children. And then in the New Testament there's the case of Jesus of Nazareth and of course the famous words that Peter speaks on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem as there are thousands of people, three 
thousand of them were converted, so perhaps they were a tenth. Perhaps it was 30,000 packing around. And Peter then, the young man, preaching to them all. And he says, men of Israel, listen to me. This is Acts 2.22, okay? It was Ephesians 1.1.1. This is Acts 2.2.2. Men of Israel, listen to me. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So, the death of Jesus Christ wasn't a shock in heaven, to God. It was not a horrible accident. It wasn't a runaway juggernaut. It was not a victory for the devil over God. Peter really gets under the skins of his great audience in Jerusalem. He reminds them that the Lord Jesus Christ had all the credentials of deity by the miracles and signs and wonders. It showed who he was. He was the promised Messiah. God worked among you through him. Lazarus was raised. You talked with him. The leper was cleansed. You saw the change in him. Five thousand men were fed by five loaves and two fishes. You tasted, many of you, the bread and the, and the fish at that time. And this same God himself purposed to hand over his son, Jesus Christ, to put him in your tender care in your wicked hands, knowing full well that he would be crucified by you. The cross and the horrible suffering was not only an act of barbaric wickedness by evil men to the best of men. It was also according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Third thing I want to say to you this morning is that men are held responsible for all that they do. People argue who was responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. The man who engineered his death, was it Judas? Was it Caiaphas and Annas, the Sanhedrin? Was it Pontius Pilate? Was it the squaddies then who nailed him to the cross and thrust the spear into his side? What about the people who knew he was innocent and yet uh, mumbled and whispered and did nothing? And all, all will be held accountable, won't they? In the day of judgment. But in the last analysis, it was God. God was in total charge of that day. You see it in those mighty empires that were raised on foundations of sin. Empires of Cyrus and Xerxes and Alexander and Nero. The hearts of all those men are in the hand of the Lord. One can imagine uh, the Jews who helped crucify Christ responding to what Peter said and said, well, aren't we? Aren't we glad to know it was all God's plan after all? So we're not accountable for what we did in crucifying him. One can imagine Xerxes saying, well, he was glad to hear Christians believe that it was God's plan to protect them in Persia. And it involved his drinking and his... Uh, peccadilloes and his sending for his wife to parade herself in front of his buddies and the callous way he divorced her and it was all God's plan and so Xerxes couldn't be held responsible 
because it was God's plan. God would smile at him at the day of judgment. Oh, oh wow, what an honour, an honour with your presence. Oh, no, 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 not at all. Dumping the queen was God's plan. But Xerxes, with wicked hands, had written the bill of divorcement. 100% God plus 100% man equals 100%. On the day of Pentecost, Peter acknowledges God's plan, God's sovereign purpose in embracing all those evil men. And yet he says, you, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You have done the most wicked thing the world has seen. And you'll answer to God for it. Now, all of us Christians here this morning would say that the death of Christ was the greatest blessing that this world has ever had. Because it reconciled a holy and sin-hating God to us, his people. It was planned from eternity. Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. His death was high obedience that he rendered to his father. Everything must happen to put him on that cross. It was done freely and willingly by wicked men out of a hateful motive. And yet at the same time it must perfectly fulfill what God had always ordained. The fourth point I want to make is what God decrees in eternity Man will always demand in time. Okay, it's, a, it's a, a quotation of one of the Puritans. What God sovereignly decrees in eternity, man will always decide to choose, will always demand in time. So, I'm saying to you, man's free will will always decide to choose the very thing that God has sovereignly ordained. And so God's purposes are fulfilled. 100% God plus 100% man equals 100%. Think of Matthew 27 and the, the, the whole chapter there of people who want to say, we're not responsible. Judas uh, wants to give the money back and uh, he says, uh, he's really innocent. I don't want the responsibility for his death. And, and they say, to, what's that to us? That was your responsibility. And Pilate knew that Jesus had done none, nothing worthy of crucifixion and yet he deliberately distorted and destroyed the law and was a weakling and uh, uh, caved in to the threats that they would tell Caesar about him that he had let a, a, a rebel go. And so he publicly washes his hands of his responsibility for the death of Christ. The crowd can choose and they exercise their free will, all the pressures, all the dynamics of a crowd of people as they shout and chant together and they say, Barabbas, 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 release unto us Barabbas. What am I to do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Crucify him, crucify him, they say. All of them responsible, answerable to God. Okay, two great questions from Matthew 27. First, exactly what did God Almighty eternally decree 
would happen to his son. He'd be crucified. Exactly what did that crowd vehemently demand at the Passover? The crucifixion of Christ. What God sovereignly decrees in eternity, men will freely choose in time. The other question? What is the only thing that will satisfy the wrath of God revealed against man's ungodliness and unrighteousness? The shed blood, the death of his son Jesus Christ. What is the only thing that will satisfy the hatred and passion of the crowd? The shed blood of Jesus Christ. What God sovereignly decrees in eternity, man will choose by his own free will in time. Last thing I want to say, the fifth point, God will use his sovereign power to protect his people. He will. Here are people who are losing their identity. They're losing their faith. The salt is losing its savour. Where is the seed of the woman going to come if the elect line are destroyed? The powers that be are threatening them. But God is the sovereign protector. And the hearts of the nobles and the officials and the leaders of Persia are in the hands of the Lord. They can't think a thought. They can't feel a feeling. They can't decide a decision. They can't act an action without the Lord. Because we all live and move and have our being in the Lord. He's the first great cause in everything that happens in the world. And when we are distressed because of uh, 9-11 and the terrible wickedness that there is in the world, we must go back to the first cause. We must go back to Almighty God. Because the hearts of all men are finally in his hand. He's the first great cause. We're so tempted to say to people, don't blame God. Don't blame God for this. As if God weren't there when it happened. As though his hands were tied. As though he was looking in, in mute horror at what happened to the uh, Twin Towers in New York. What we need in our hour of grief is to know he's with us. What Vashti needed to know we don't know if she were a true believer, but she behaved like a godly woman. What she needed to know when the bill of divorce arrived, she needed to know God had a plan for her future. And that this God, he does not afflict willingly. Lamentations 3.3.3. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 33. The Lord does not afflict willingly. Think of what uh, Thomas Watson says. You must start to read the Puritans now. And Thomas Watson is one of the best uh, writers for you to read. God says, uh, Thomas Watson says, God always has a hand in the action where the sin is. But he never has a hand in the sin of the action. All right? God always has a hand in the action where the sin is, but he never has a hand in the sin of the action. So God there, yeah, in Manhattan, on uh, September the 9th, God has a hand there. doesn't matter what happened, where it happened, to whom it happened, 
when it happened, if it took place, nothing happens in a vacuum. God has a hand in it. God controls it. It's impossible for God to sin. God never says to you, go ahead and sin. That never happens. The contemptuous, drunken anger of Xerxes and his hurt pride in dismissing his wife like that. That was utterly wicked. God didn't do that. That was Xerxes' sin alone. The, The boys that sold their brother into slavery in in Egypt, wicked boys did that. The unthinkable action of the Jews and the Romans in driving nails through the hands and feet of Jesus and nailing into a cross. It was men, wicked men, who did that. God always has a hand in the action where the sin is but never has a hand in the sin of the action. Vashti might weep and say, it's so unfair. It was unfair. Many of the things that happen to us in our lives are unfair. God never said when he, when he saved you and made you a Christian, from now on it's going to be a Mercedes in the drive and a second home in the south of France. And long life and health and loads of children and grandchildren and a fame. God never said that to you. He said it would be taking up your cross and denying yourself and following Jesus. That's what he said, didn't he? Didn't he tell you that? Didn't he ask you to count the cost? Didn't he say you would be blessed when men persecute you and say all manner of evil against you? It wasn't fair. It wasn't fair for Joseph to be sold into slavery. It wasn't fair for Jeremiah to be lowered into that pit. It wasn't fair for Stephen to be stoned or James to be killed with a sword. It wasn't fair for Nero to burn, to burn Christians in Rome. Many of the things that have happened to, to Christians, they're terrible things. They're not fair. But the promise is we won't suffer above that we are willing to bear. If we are thrown into a furnace, the Son of Man will be with us. When we pass through deep waters, they won't overthrow and drown us. We shall more than survive. We shall be more than conquerors. Take courage. That's the great message to you this morning. Take courage. Take hope. Look to the God of hope. If you are not a Christian this morning, remember that this is the God against whom you are rebelling. How can you be so foolish to rebel against so powerful and loving a God? Be reconciled to him today. Lay down your weapons of rebellion. Sue God for peace. Almighty God, bless thy word to us. We thank thee that thou art so powerful, that all our hearts are in thy hands, that thou hast brought us here to remind us of these things, of thy might, that thou canst use the wickedness of the people that are in high places in our land and in the nations of the world today to accomplish much good. And so we have seen in China and this mighty spread, the thousands who every day are coming to know thee as God and Saviour, Oh, advance and bless and keep that work there, we pray. And give us hope then that we sow with joy in the days to come. Keep us from temptation. 
Help our hands not to be wicked in anything they do, but to do them with all the might, to the honor and praise of Jesus' name, in whose name we pray. Amen.